should start talking about football. Blog Talk Radio. Because we're the Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers number one. Yes, we're the Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers. Houston Oilers number one. Hello, everyone. You're listening to an early afternoon, I guess, evening version of Bell Red Radio. And my name is Matt Weston, and tonight I'm joined by the one and only uh, Luke from the Four Leaf Clover Land of Ireland. How are you doing tonight, Luke? I am doing good. I'm excited every time that I come on this show to see how you introduce me and what base way you introduce the country of my origin. But uh, listen, Four Leaf Clover Land is probably the least offensive thing you could have you could have called it. So I'm happy with that for now. How are you doing, Matt? Yeah, I'm doing well, and yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not, you know, a racist or sexist or homophobic <laughs> or anything like that at all whatsoever. I didn't bring that, what, any of those words into this book, <laughs> sure. But what I am, I'm an American and I'm an ethnocentrist. So any chance I get to to make fun of another country, I have to take the opportunity as I can because there's only one, <laughs> one country I know and only one country I understand, one country I can never love, and that's these United States. I imagine, like, as you're saying that, like, an American flag is out furling out in the background and, like, a bald eagle lands on your shoulder. I wish. I don't have an American flag, actually. I have a, I have a map of California, but I don't have an American flag. <laughs> I need to change that, though. It's in my heart. My I, These these lungs bleed red, white, and blue, you know? Nice. Nice. That's so probably a medical, serious medical condition. You should seek out doctor help for that. <laughs> Uh, well, Luke, did you know that the last chapter of The Sound of Fury is the only Easter sermon you'll ever need? <laughs> well, uh, listen, I'm glad we got The Sound of the Fury reference out of the way early. Okay, okay, I, I knew it was going to linger around here for the rest of the podcast, so we're good, we're good that we got it out of the way, but no, I did not. Why, why, is, it, why, is, it the, why is it the only Easter sermon I'll ever need, Matt? Well, the the fourth chapter of The Sound of Fury is whenever you know, William Faulkner goes from stream of consciousness and first person and really pulls back the curtain and lets you know exactly what's going on from a third-person perspective. And so from there, you can see, you know, every character in, a, I guess, a more neutral way, but instead of, you know, what their own thoughts are or thinking at that time. And uh, in the last chapter, they all go to church and they go to an African-American church and they even take Benji over there, and it's Miss Dilly's church. She wears a, a big purple hat, and um, and then you kind of get the the reasoning why you know the whole entire family you know fell and you know, tore apart, and why they're they're in the miserable state that they were that they are currently in uh, after being such a I guess high class aristocratic family for so long. Is the best way to say that, but. And pretty much is the only reason why is that it takes place on Easter and they have an Easter Mass. And so because of that reason alone, I read that book every Easter. And since Easter is on Sunday, uh, you know, I just had to bring it up. Oh, nice. I, I was honestly surprised that for a second there, and you realized, like, he reads it only once a year. And I was like, that doesn't sound like you. <laughs> no, I have, like, there's, like, four different things I read every year. I read Chapter 4, The Sound of Fury, every Easter I read the Blood Meridian every summer whenever it's like 105 degrees. I get drunk around Christmas time and read The Dead by James Joyce. And then I read The Road every like February and it's completely dreary. 
And uh, and then in between that, some other stuff I read, you know. Nice. I only ever read The Dead when it starts snowing. Because like, yeah. all of the, the final few lines always remind me. And we had like a really bad snow drift a couple of months ago. So I just sat sat in my room with like my computer on next to me playing music and just reading The Dead and looking outside while just heavily, heavy, heavy snowfall just fell the entire time. It was really kind of cool. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's that's exactly what I want to do. I want to go to Ireland just so I can sit there and read The Dead in the snow. <laughs> that's my idea of vacation. Um, do, you have anything, do you have anything you want to banner about at all? Uh, I mean... No, 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 really. I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing else that I can think of off the top of my head. I mean, nothing, nothing like I occasionally read Edgar Allan, Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, um, every October or Halloween. That's a good one. Also, which is just such a fun, fun poem to read, out of Yeah, that's a good one for that time of year. I think you know books are best whenever you read them in the setting that they kind of go along with, and and how the heart feels, you know. Yeah, more so than that. Yeah, well, if you if you didn't know, this is a Texans podcast, and oh crap, uh, we'll crap, stop, is that what it is? Dang it! <laughs> we'll stop being nerds and talking about books and and why uh, this is. And permission, I'm only saying this for a text when we get the chance to listen to it. We have to at least have at least one Faulkner reference for every five episodes to to keep him wily. But for uh, every five. Yeah, and the lie yeah, we both last, know. <laughs> the last time we spoke was. Entering free agency, and we had a big hol- we had some holidays come and go. Uh, since then, we haven't had a show in a while, and so got to catch back up as well too. So tonight, we're going to talk about a free agency and everything that's happened. Free agency went on, I guess, about two and a half weeks ago or so, three weeks, and the Texans really haven't done anything since that first wave has kind of come to concluded. Uh, everything is kind of settled, so we'll kind of review what they've done and what they can do going forward, and maybe give some ideas of you know Brian Gain and Bill Bryan's new pending offense and. Where they could possibly go in the draft, depending on uh, the time that we got. So with $63 million in cap space, the Texans did make quite a few moves. They slotted the offensive line with Zach Bolton, Sunil Calamente, and Santrell Henderson. They signed Johnson Badmosey for special teams. I assume he's probably going to play some defensive back as well. Tyra Matthew and Aaron Colvin helped the secondary. And they also re-signed Jonathan Joseph. They brought back Shannon Leckler, of course, because you know they hate me uh, so very much. And the big theme here is that Houston had two major weaknesses, and they put money into it. Uh, what's kind of surprising, though, first off, is just the moves they didn't make. Uh, you know, Jeff Allen's still here, Kareem Jackson's still here, Lamar Miller's still here, Ryan Griffin are still here. So, Luke, why are these players still on this team, and what role do you think they'll even have in 2018? It's uh, it's a bit of a difficult one to put a finger on because it, looking at looking at who the Texans have brought in during those first few, first two weeks, you would say oh, these are players who you would think would replace the guy, the likes of Allen, the likes of um, Jackson. Um, in particular, Kareem Jackson is, he, he, he had a very fun, I think, 24-hour cycle of they sign Aaron Colvin and everyone immediately turned to, oh, Kareem Jackson's going to safety now. And then, oh, here's Tyron Matthew. Oh, where's Kareem Jackson going to play now? <laughs> so... If he's going to, like, why he's still on the roster, considering he probably would be the dime corner now, be the fourth corner on the depth charts, for the for the salary that he has, I don't know, man. I don't know. Unless the Texans are planning to go to, like, 
uh, 4-2-5 look with Kareem Jackson playing as the third safety, which, hey, that'd be kind of cool. It'd be interesting to see. But, again, it's it's superfluous. And it's something which you wouldn't want on your team for the amount of money that you're paying Jackson. The same mm-hmm. can kind of be said for Allen. I think he had one or two games at the end of last year where he did quite well at tackle. The Texans have now brought in Zach Fulton and Senio Calamante, so they've actually filled the two guard slots which Allen was originally signed to play. So the Texans are just like, will we go out and get somebody else? Or, sorry, this is what I think they went, was Allen and Jackson are both embedded into the team already. Their salaries, whilst being a little bit hefty for what they're going to be, which is probably backups, it's okay and it can be livable with. Whereas if we got them out and tried to fill those spots with more players, uh, or sorry, with different players from different backgrounds, it could be a little bit tricky. I mean, you're looking at things which were already um, minuses going into the offseason. Like the secondary was a problem and the offensive line was a problem. So it's almost counterintuitive to get rid of players that you know are kind of good over trying to remove them and then trying to replace them with people that you may not know or you may not comfortable be comfortable with, but you still think, okay, there's a little bit of an upside here. That's the mm-hmm. only, and it's, I think it's the same with Ryan Griffin also. Whereas the Texans had three tight ends, they kind of have two now, because like, uh, CJ Fordowitz, I believe, is retired now. Um, it's, 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 been a, it's been a while since I've actually looked over the Texans side. Yeah, he's, he's so, officially retired now. So he's officially retired. So that's two active t- starting tight ends on the roster. So to get rid of Griffin would mean that you're placing all of your faith in Steven Anderson, which, hey, listen, I love Steven Anderson, but I don't love him that much to just give him the starting job by default, uh, which, it, again, I don't think it would be that case, but still, you're not going to... You're not going to go out and try and make more holes on your roster just for the sake of creating cap space because it, it's a lot harder to fill them with players which are of a decent, or a decent variety or a better variety than what you're getting rid of. And also, like, you have the knowledge that, okay, they're going to integrate well within our system. Mm-hmm. Lamar Miller, who I think is the final one that, that you mentioned, Miller, I think, is the only one that can actually still get a fair amount of playing time. I think especially with the way that Bill O'Brien's discussed the changing of the offense this offseason, I think either Miller's going to shift into a two-back into a two-back system with Dante Foreman, which I am all for. I love two-back systems. I think they are the way forward, and, put it, and putting all of the workload onto one back, I think is just asking to cut their career a little bit short. So I think that's why Miller is probably staying around, because they have a plan for him, whereas the other three, they're just like, okay, let's just keep them here simply as backups because we don't have any better alternatives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with pretty much all of that. Uh, the one thing I guess I think is interesting about is if they, like, I understand keeping Miller. I think Miller's a good player. He's just been, you know, severely handicapped by the offense he plays in. I think Ryan Griffin's really bad. He can't block. The one thing he does well is run out to the flag, catch a pass for three yards and tackle immediately. I think by cutting him, like even though Steven Anderson be the only guy, that that you know two and a half million dollars or so they could have saved, they could have used that money go out and get somebody with some actual athletic ability, and then draft somebody in the third round or whatever, and maybe have something I don't know at the time position because they haven't had that since they made such emphasis on it. You going back to 2014, and then with Jackson, 
it's like pass rushers. You can never have enough defensive backs. You can never have enough pass rushers. Even though Jackson isn't good anymore, he doesn't have good feet. And as he's gotten older, he's lost, you know, he's lost that physical ability. And so mm-hmm. he gets, can't turn off his brakes well. He loses guys out of cuts. He can't find the football. And so because of all those sorts of things, you know, he's not very good. But, you know, I understand he's been the team for that long. And, you know, cutting him and then going with, you know, Morris Claiborne, even though I think that would probably have been a better move, you know, there's something to say about uh, consistency and continuity. And then, you know, and I think they may have thought about moving to safety, but once Matthew came up as an opportunity to go out and get him right then and there for the contract he signed for, I think it really was a question all to kind of dabble in that. And then with Jeff Allen, I think he's going to be just like, hey, let's see if he can, you know, play right tackle, left guard, you know, left tackle, whatever. We're going to see what he can do and put him in uh, – you know, competition battles, and if he's really bad, like he's been, you know, his two years in Houston, they can always cut him and have that $7 million for some cap relief. Uh, whenever more cuts are made in the summer, they can use that to sign other players, or in case, you know, you always have to have a little bit of cap space to kind of move guys around later on then. So I'm, I'm surprised all four of these guys are back. I assume that, you know, one or two would be cut, so Houston can maybe make a, a bigger impact at, you know, make a bigger run. Somebody like, you know, Tremaine Johnson or Kyle Fuller or, you know, even Andrew Norwell or even maybe give enough money to make Miss Solar change your mind. But uh, I don't, I don't, I'm not, you know, I thought at least one or two of these guys would be gone and send it all four here. And I can understand the reason why between, you know, three of them, except for, you know, Griffin, just because of how bad he's been. But, you know, I, I can see where they're coming from here. And, again, there's something to say about, you know, consistency and continuity in a game like football. Yeah. I also think um, there might have been a small little bit of optical kind of thing with Ryan Griffin in terms of, just how you look at it in terms of Brian Gain gets into the job and he cuts um, a player who Brick Smith had extended, what, maybe nine months earlier? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's like it is speculative to just suggest something like that. But I think it, there's also a thing there just like, let's let's hold on for a second before we do something like that. And, yeah. and again, I think I think the majority of it comes down to do we feel like it's worth getting rid of a guy that's already good in our locker room and we know they do they do well in our system, or sorry, they do okay in our system, to pay maybe more for somebody who might not work out as well? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, 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 a, it's a bit of a dish. I, like, I think, for me in particular, I think, and this is a very idyllic, or sorry, um, an idealized way of looking at free agency, I think you should never go into free agency looking to replace, or sorry, to to fill a need, essentially. And I know that's kind of weird to sound, but if take take the Texans this offseason, for example. Um, they had a big need to tackle. And the whole idea was, okay, we've got a lot of cap room, and we've got a big need. So let's go out there and put a lot of money into Nate Solder, who's 29, 30. He's quite good. He instantly kind of just slot in that slot. But the thing is, you're coming at it from the, the, or sorry, the angle that you should be paying 15, 16 million to a guy to fix a problem, which is kind of systemic within your team. As in, you should be constantly developing guys throughout and cycling them in and out of contracts. Like, if you bring in if you bring in Nate Solder for 15 for 16 million, what are you taking away from Julian Davenport? What are you taking mm-hmm. away from guys that are on cheaper contracts and you're you're taking playing time away from them? More so than that, you're investing a large amount of cap cap space to fix a to fix a problem very quickly whilst also creating another problem eventually down the look down the line in terms of creating development time or sorry taking away playing time from other players so that's 
build through like it, this is essentially a long-winded way of saying build through build the rest of your team through the draft and use free agency as a simple just kind of hey Nindamukong Sue is available. We've already got JJ Watt, Whitney Merciless, and Jadavian Clanny, but screw it, let's go do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Like that yeah, kind of yeah yeah. I think that's an interesting like idea you know, for team building is you can take this and then exasperate your strengths and really kind of like iron out exactly uh, you know what you're good at and what your team is going to be built on around because without a cap with the cap space and a salary cap you, know, you can't be good at everything you're going to have holes in your roster no matter what and then based on your rookie contracts you can kind of pick and choose how you want to spend money from there and decide how you want to build your your team and then fill out your scheme you know kind of go along with that but uh, I think the Arizona free agency is good for I think the biggest thing is you want to. You have to pay for what it takes to bring players to you, not necessarily what they're worth. And so, because you're having to overpay for every, for just about everybody that you find in free agency, I think the key is to be able to find you know top talent. And if you're going to spend money, you have to find you know great players. You don't want to overpay for mediocre players because that's how you end up in you know a big hole regarding the salary cap. And then you want to find you know the bargain bin, uh, create CDs in the front of the Walmart from there to fill up the rest of the roster, and then. Who knows if you get enough of those guys, you may get uh, you know some something really surprising out of it. And so I think the other important, the other move that you know Houston was expected to make that they didn't make was uh, not signing Nate Solder. Now everything that's come out is that they offered a contract similar to what the New York Giants offered uh, Nate Solder. You know, Houston had the money, the need, and the interest, but he ended up going to New York instead, and it was simply because you know his wife decided that he, they would rather stay on the East Coast. Um, are you in the agreement with me that the Texans are better off being spurned by Miss Solder than you know, actually keeping him here to actually play left tackle? Um, so I'd like yes and no. Yes, I am because I quite like Julian Davenport and I want him more playing. To, I want to give him more playing time to develop. And no, because I think Solder would have actually been a, a, de- a quite good fit. And even though the contract would have been extorbitant and it would have been just massive. It's the left tackle, and once you lock that position there, and you can, it's it's a big part of fixing your offensive line, especially for protecting probably the franchise's most valuable asset right now in Deshaun Watson. We like so, yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to spend. I don't want to give Nate Solder that much money, and I want to let Julian Davenport develop. No, I want Deshaun Watson to be safe at all costs. I just want to wrap him in a bubble wrap. Mm-hmm. Make sure make sure he doesn't run downstairs and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, and you know I, I always saw that you know the need and you have the money and so why not put your money in to to fill the biggest needs you have? But I mean, it's after watching Solder play, like he needed a lot of help to be you know the above average pass blocker he was. He used a lot of aggressive pass sets. You know the Patriots get the ball out quickly. Uh, he doesn't have very good hand placement, and so you know he gets beat inside a lot by counter moves and. He needed a lot of help to begin with to be you know, above-average pass blocker. And he doesn't really do anything in the run game at all whatsoever. And so for $16 million a year, you know, I don't think it's really worth paying that much. I think Houston ended up in a better spot you know, going out to camp possibly with Julian Davenport left tackle for the, instead of giving Nate Solder $16 million. And I know that there's a nice peace of mind of having a left tackle and he's there and you can kind of go from there. But uh, I think for the money that you spend, you know, that's how you kind of kill your cap spaces. But paying too much for the mediocre to bad talent, and uh, I think Kyle Solder is you know mediocre at, at the most, and it's 
if Davenport's not that good, you know, that's the problem that they're going to have to deal with. And we have to tell Brian to kind of scheme around. And, you know, luckily Watson can move around some. But I think the way the offseason went, you know, Houston's better off not giving Solder $16 million a year. Yeah, and there's also, and there's also the idea of is this investment going to reap rewards, like, in, instantaneously? Like, is the offense going to become so good, or sorry, is Soldier's impact on the offense going to help it get to the kind of next level as it would be? Which mm-hmm. I would debate, because I don't think the team is just there yet. I'd say, like, we're going to have to figure out just what the offense is A, going to look like now that it's going to be a second season of Deshaun Watson. He's going to be it's going to be a different style of system. Teams are going to have more tape on them, so they're going to be able to counter schemes. So there's no guarantee that the offense with Watson at the helm is going to come back and be great. So why don't we just not push all of our chips onto the table very fast and put a lot of money into Solder when we're not sure if the reward, or sorry, if the reward is going to be worth it, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that makes sense. Um, well, the... The Texans did make a lot of moves, and like we talked about earlier, the I think the big key theme here with the moves they made is that they didn't go you know all in on one guy. Uh, it was kind of a weird for agency class where there wasn't a lot of top talent available. You know, there was Andrew Norwell, uh, Kyle Fuller was never really a free agent. Tremaine Johnson was, but you know, at 31 years old, he signed a ridiculous contract with the Jets. Uh, Allen mm-hmm. Robinson was the big wide receiver available. It was you know, signed to a pretty good deal for the Bears, but. You know, overall, there wasn't a lot of top talent available, and so Houston kind of just did what they did pretty much the draft. Uh, some of the ones that you did in the draft where you trail the first round and have you know, three second-round picks instead and get a lot of spins at the wheel instead of going all in on one or two guys. Uh, so first, you know, let's talk about the secondary. The Texans signed Aaron Colvin. They signed Tyra Matthew for one year, $7 million. They signed Johnson Badmosey. They re-signed Jonathan Joseph for two years, $10 million. Now you watched Aaron Colvin. You wrote uh, a lot about him. Uh, so, what do you think of him? What do you think of him as a player? And do you think he's going to be worth the contract that he was given? So, Aaron Colvin is is kind of difficult to get a strong feel for. You think like there are parts of his play in which you look at and you go, yeah, okay, there's there's stuff to work with here. Again, when you're cover when you're trying to go into nuanced study about the third and fourth corners on teams, you're trying to kind of turn mountains out of molehills, or sorry, molehills into mountains uh, a lot of the times. So you're trying to take small details and extrapolate them out to large mm-hmm. things. It's, it's a bit of a problem, but for Colvin, the concern, the, I have, I'm, I'm trying to phrase this correctly. I'm, I have concerns about how he's going to look outside of a defense that's just got so many different weapons around and in it. Because he, he was blessed in that he had two corners outside who could take pretty much any assignment and his job in a lot of in a lot of the cover four sets was to just force everything inside because Miles Jack and Telvin Colvin can uh, sorry, Telvin Smith can essentially just range all the way across the field. And that any quarterback who throws over the middle is just asking to get picked. So how do we go from Colvin as a function within a within a really talented unit to okay we're gonna sh- like put you outside in the cover four put you outside in the cover three and cover three man and ask you to do a very to do a decent enough job so that you're not a liability. I think he's got the hand usage to do that and there and he's got a decent enough backpedal when it when it comes to it at certain times. 
I think he can bite um, very hard on a lot of play on a lot of fakes mm-hmm. and jukes so, so, um, a lot of amount of time. So I think more well-versed route runners will have their way with him. I would be tepid to put him up against T.Y. Hilton straight away because um, Hilton's in very, very good at the double move and stop starting, whereas Colvin can get a little bit... He can get his feet essentially muddled. Again, this probably won't be that much of an issue if he's playing off-man, which is what Romeo Carlyle often likes to do in, like, cover yeah. three, cover four. So they're essentially protecting the deep, the deep part of the field. It's just... Will he be able to adjust to the short and underneath stuff? Because a lot of that we get, I didn't get to see as much of as I would as I would like to, simply because he's not on the field for every single snap. So I can't see if he's going to. It, I can't see him against every possible variation of what a team's going to throw at them. Do mm-hmm. as the for the signing as a whole. I think it's got really good upside, and I think it, it's kind of reflected in the contract as a whole because it's not. It wasn't the exorbitant amount that was given to Tremaine Johnson, nor was it the huge amount. The, it was like five, five years, sixty-one million total that was given to Malcolm Butler by Tennessee. It's, yeah, I know, I know. It's the. Uh, I listen. I kind of wanted Malcolm Butler, but I'm gonna put that. I was expect, kind of hoping to get him at the price that we got Aaron Colvin, um, and very, very glad that we didn't pay the price that Tennessee did. Um, but I think Colvin signing is, again, it's it's one of those low kind of risk in terms of okay if he and I said and I said this in the piece also where it's if he bottoms out and he's not able to play on the outside if he's not able to kind of be that number one number two corner you know what you've got in him in terms of he's a quite good um, nickel cor- he's quite a good nickel corner who can play cover three cover four short zones he's done it a loss he can play it well and if you put him within the structure he can do it even better now, if he be- does become the very the if he does develop a little bit more and he becomes the one or two corner, suddenly that contract looks like an absolute genius piece of piece of work by Ryan Gain because it suddenly means like wow I can't believe we got this corner this talented for this little amount. So I think it's low risk high reward, mm-hmm. and I think that's what the Texans kind of went with this entire offseason. for Colvin in particular. I think it's too early to call it yet. I, we're going to have to see just what scheme he goes into. I think cover three would suit him well with a little bit of cover one adjusted into it so he can actually play press man occasionally, and he can use his hands, which are his best attribute. Um, I think if they're having him play cover four um, on the outside zone, like the Texans corners were asked to do last year, I would have a little bit of a reservation because I think it is a bit of a change for him. But I think he can adjust, and that's probably the most... Because that, that was one of the things about Jacksonville last year, the Jags in particular, um, which Jalen Ramsey uh, very astutely put early on in the season when he, when he was asked to compare the defense that they were running that year to the one that was run under Gus Bradley, which was, um, yeah, we we, run, we actually ran different coverages this time. We weren't just running cover three <laughs> solidly, which I found kind of funny because when I first started queuing up the tape for Colvin and I looked at Jalen Ramsey and I was like, wait a minute, he's doing the exact same thing, which was, it was cover three, and he was flipping his hips pre-snap, which is just like the, the deadline, that's your indicator for cover three. If you see your cover, if you see your corner flip his hips inwards toward, towards the quarterback, he's actually reading the quarterback and dropping into his own. He's not reading the man anymore. But yeah, what eventually was you watch it a little bit more and you realize, oh, they're doing combo coverages and they're doing tons of, tons of funky other stuff like they're having... Uh, AJ Boy man up on one side, uh, 
Jalen Ramsey play like a cover cover three zone on, on the other side, and then they'll switch that around, and then they'll have Aaron Colvin be a nickel blitzer, which they did a lot against the Texans in the first game of the season, and it never worked, but they still kept doing it, which is really weird. Um, <laughs> you like tons of different tons of different looks. They had a little bit of cover two for, fixed in. They had a little bit of press man also. So there was fun fun stuff that was constantly going around with the Jags' defense, which Colvin was a part of, and he adjusted to it quite nicely. So I think there's um, there should be some kind of, a little bit of enthusiasm in terms of, okay, I think I think uh, he can adjust well, and I think that's probably going to be the biggest, the, big, the biggest thing that we're going to have to focus on in regards to Colvin going forward, is whether yeah. he can adjust. Yeah, and... I, you know, but going off what you said too, like that's what I like about the Coleman signing was one the contract was you know reasonable, especially considering what you know cornerbacks usually get in free agency. I'd much rather have Coleman for what he got than have Tremaine Johnson, or Malcolm uh, Malcolm Butler for what he got in Tennessee. Uh, Coleman's much more reasonable and you know and matches kind of what his skill what his skill set is. The other thing about Coleman too is he is versatile. And like you wrote about, and because pretty much I haven't watched that much Colvin, but I learned a lot of it just from editing the article you wrote. But just his ability to play, you know, tight press man coverage in slot, uh, be able to actually play zone coverage and you know cover three, and then you know some cover four, and then be able to you know, force guys into certain things is something that Houston really could use last year. They had trouble in the slot because Kareem Jackson was bad at it. They had trouble in zone coverage because the entire team struggled at passing guys off. Uh, so many deep passes were just because somebody lets them run past them whenever they had that man or the other person didn't actually know it was his man to pick up. And so I think by having somebody as well-versed in his own coverage will be very beneficial, too, for Colvin. And also, you know, there's upside there. Uh, he was probably like the ninth best player on the past, best pass defense in football last year, but that's just based on the situation in Jacksonville. Now having even more responsibility, more freedom, uh, more, you know, snaps up there to play. Uh, who knows how good he could be in, in a situation in Houston. He could be much worse as well, too. Now playing with A.J. Boye, uh, Jalen Ramsey doing the best pass, pass rushers in football, you know, isn't going to help as well either. But uh, who knows, you know, maybe in a in a system like this and, and more responsibility to him, he can, you know, I guess really kind of separate himself uh, in that sort of way, too. But I, I really do like the Colvin signing. And I think I like most about, most about was the versatility. And that kind of brings us to the other big sign they made. And this one, I guess, is more flashy and more, oh, my God, from that perspective than Colvin was. And that was my sign, Tyron Matthew. Uh, the Cardinals offered him a pay cut. He declined. They offered him, like, a one-year $9 million. Uh, he declined again. He decided to sign in Houston for one year $7 million. And so since Daniel Manning, the Texans really haven't had a strong safety. Off the top of my head, they've used guys like Corey Moore, uh, Raheem Moore, DJ Swearinger, uh, how can you name any other strong safeties the Texans have used? Uh, Marcus Gilchrist, Eddie Pleasant, yeah. Corey Moore, um, KJ Dillon for a little while. Maybe. Oh man, uh, let me go. I'm trying. I'm tr- like I'm. Re- I'm going through the me- my mental rolodex of, ta- of Texan safeties. Uh, this, is a, this is a fun dream game. It's kind of like. Guess every quarterback Andre Johnson caught a pass from. That's always a fun oh, one, too. Oh, good. That's a depressing, depressing list. Kendrick Lewis played some for him. Oh, he wow, really? Free safety. Shallow K.O. played some strong safety. Oh, how could we forget K.O.? Oh, I'm so annoyed. I'm so annoyed that I forgot 
Texans, everyone's favorite uh, leaping man, uh, Shiloh Keo. Yeah, I'm one of those people who has, like, every copy of the football prospectus around just in case I need it. But, yeah, I think I think uh, those are all I can kind of come up with on the top of my head. But the point is the Texans haven't had a good, strong safety in forever. Uh, and they, Andre Howell's been dependable as a free safety, but without a good, strong safety to complement him, I think he's you know underperformed mainly because of the scheme and situation he was placed under. And so, you know, Matthew's a guy who's all about versatility. Um, so what do you think he can offer Houston? What do you think he's best at? Do you think he's even as versatile as his name is given? Because I know last year was kind of a down year for him, uh, mainly because of his ACL tear and some injuries he's had. And, you know, are you are you as excited as everybody else is about having Tyra Matthew play for the Houston Texans? Um, yes, very very much so. Um, it, to be honest, when it when I heard about the signing originally, I was like, that doesn't seem right. It was like, that seems like a... At first start, it seemed like a genuine strong safety, and secondly, that seems like an exciting defensive back, and we haven't had one of those since probably AJ Boye. But like, it's it's different because he's an aggressive player, and and, and I think there's there's something which I've never really associated with the Texans' defensive backs. It's been just aggression, but not in the level of just like down in the down in like playing in the box and supporting in the run game kind of aggression, um, except for Kareem Jackson. But that's that's different, or sorry, it's a little bit weirder, I think. Um, in terms of, like, Matthew Matthew as a whole is just something which the Texans really haven't had in a long time. Again, it's a it's a strong safety, but more so than that, it's the free, or sorry, it's hopefully the freedom that will be granted um, to other players in the defense because he will take a lot of the stress off of it. Like, we're not going to, I don't want... And I've, I've said this a couple of times to you already. It's just like I don't want another year of Andre Howe as the strong safety blitzer. I don't want it. It's he's let's like let's put let's put a pin in this. He's not good at it. He like you can scheme him to get as much space as he wants. He just cannot blitz. And I don't think you want him to blitz either. That's that's the main point. I don't think you want one of your be- one of your best like your more ranger safeties to spend time down the box. Yeah, there you can do it for a bunch of different reasons, i.e. to throw different looks at offenses, but again, much in the same way that dropping Genevieve and Clowney into coverage is just the, okay, this is something you guys have to think about. It's just like, why would you think about it apart from just in terms to laugh at it? Because you're taking a good player away from what they do really well. Mm-hmm. And what I hope and what I hope hope the Texans do with Tyra Matthew is put him in the uh, put him down in the box and let him be the just absolute mayhem record that he can be let like put him over slot corners he can he can do that do you want to do you want some extra run sport sure we can have tyron matthew in there do you want to play do you want to play cover three or cover one yeah let's bring tyron matthew down at the box and just have him attack or like attack the quarterback or attack the backfield all of that is what he does well and all of that is fun and that's something which the texans haven't had like in the past five, six years, Daniel Manning being the last one, and even he wasn't that great at it, at least not in comparison to Matthew. So it's a different aspect of the defense, which we've never had before, and I'm very, very excited to see actually what Romeo Cornell does with him. I'm going to be I'm going to be very mad if he ends up in cover four looks, and he like he is back there with Andre Hall. I'm going to be very, very annoyed if they take him out of the box, if they take him out mm-hmm. of the... Like, I, I want to see, like, eight-man fronts this season. I, I want it. I want it more than anything else. Because 
just to take away the run game more than anything else, I think would help the Texans because I don't think they can. I, even even with Watt and Clowney and Merciless, the pass rush is has always been a little bit iffy, or is can it can come and go in terms of how effective it can be. So just taking away the run game, and let's focus on taking away that, and then we can move on to everything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, what I like most about Matthew is, like, I think he's a player that the Texans have been really dying to have for the you know, last three or four years, and you know, going back to 2014, whenever they had it, they changed Romeo Cornell, you know, they drafted DJ Swearing in the second round, and there's a reason for that. They needed, not only did they need a strong safety, but they wanted a strong safety who could, you know, play in the box, who could cover tight ends and running backs, who could blitz, who could, you know, snuff out screens, and you can do a lot of different things. You know, DJ Swearinger wasn't that player, though. He couldn't play the deep half of the field. Uh, he was, wasn't was football smart enough to, you know, have guys pass over to him in zone coverage. And the Texans gave a ton of deep passes in 2014, mainly because DJ Swearinger just didn't know what to do in, you know, zone coverage. Um, and so, you know, then they end up with, you know, like in 2016, for example, or 2015, you they want to play kind of like with the safety in the box because they're having trouble guarding tight ends and running backs. So they put Eddie Pleasant there as a nickel linebacker. And he gets demolished in the run game. The Texans are giving up, you know, seven yards a carry out of shotgun runs pretty consistently because, again, they have Eddie Pleasant. You know, they're playing nickel linebacker. And then last year, a lot of these problems are a little bit better because they had Zach Cunningham at inside linebacker, which is a guy who can blitz. He can you know, cover running backs and tight ends a little bit, but he's predominantly good at covering running backs, and Houston was actually pretty good at that last year because of it. Uh, Bernardo McKinney still struggles in coverage, but with, you know, Cunningham there, he was able to kind of replace that. But you still have, you know, Andre Hell blitzing, like you mentioned. You have Eddie Pleasant playing more snaps than he should. You have Eddie Pleasant blitzing as well. And now with Matthew, you have a guy who can do all these things that you know, Houston needed with just in one package. He can cover running backs. He can cover tight ends. He can play in the slot if you want him to. He can blitz. He can play against the run. He's a great tackler. He's good against screens. And so all these different things that you wanted to have, all these different you know, needs of versatility that you try to ask for for different players who weren't good enough to do it, I think you have that in Matthew. And so for the contract, you know, it's a slam dunk deal. Uh, even if he isn't ever the player was in Arizona for you know, the contract and things that he's shown he can do before, uh, you know, like it was just a, a great decision and great – you'll get for Houston on there. And, and so I think, you know, that's, I think if he's able to be good enough uh, to where he was in Arizona, I think it's really kind of be the key for the Texas secondary, because if you have him and Colvin, you have two guys who are pretty versatile and do different things and they can mix coverages up a lot. And I think that will really make up for the fact that, you know, John and Joseph gets burnt by deep passes, uh, that Krim Jackson isn't very good anymore. And that Kevin Johnson may never be good at all whatsoever. So uh, I, I really like the signing and, you know, I think it's me so nice to go watch somebody be able to do, be able to actually do the things in the safety position that Texans are asking them to do, instead of watch, you know, Eddie Pleasant try to cover a tight end and have the ball thrown over his head, you know. Mhm. But the, but then but then again, ball watching has never been a, a Texan defensive back strength. Yeah. Like like I yeah I remember you saying earlier it was just like yeah Kareem Jackson could like he couldn't locate the ball it was about you Kareem Jackson never been able to locate the ball. That's yeah, something he's never been able to do. It's it's like I saw Aaron Colvin not being able to do it in one time also, and I was just like, ah, that's a second DB. <laughs> that's a second DB. Yeah, it's just like he's perfect. Let's do it. But yeah, I I think it's 
it's good for in terms of creating versatility. Now, whether or not that versatility gets utilized is a different question. Um, I think it's really going to depend on Romeo Grinnell and how the season goes. Because, like, we saw during, oh, I think it was, wasn't 16, it was 2016 season when J.J. Watt's first injury happened. Um, like, Romeo got, sorry, yeah, Romeo Grinnell got, like, very creative in how he kind of schemed pressure and how he created, like, viable ways for the Texans to actually get to the quarterback and also to not give up crap tons of yards through the air. So the hope the hope with going forward is that with all the pieces on the table, with J.J. Watt back, with, Jitta, with Whitney Merciless back, and now with the renewed secondary, is that this can hopefully all come together and we can actually see what the Texans' defense has been threatening to be for the past couple of years, which has been, you know, very, very, very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, I think so too. And I think that's also one of the things I really like about Matthew as well is that he's going to be the defense coach by Romeo Cornell instead of Mike Vrabel. And so it's going to be a lot of fun to see somebody who actually knows how to scheme against an offense and uh, and has done a lot of creative things before in the past to be able to use Matthew in a way that it can be interesting and you're really good at. And the last question I have about you know, the defense and secondary decisions that were made is that, you know, Houston, you mentioned J.J. Watt's first injury. Last year, both him and Whitney Merciless were injured. They didn't have a player who could step up to, you know, overcompensate for those injuries in the secondary. And the Texans have one of the worst defenses in football. Unlike the year before, the secondary is the best part of the defense, and A.J. Boye was the best player on that secondary that was the best part of the defense, which allowed them to be able to overcome the loss of J.J. Watt. And so let's say this year something similar happens. Let's say, you know, Jadavion Clowney is hurt for a bit of time or – Watt gets hurt again and plays, you know, three games or Merciless is injured. Do you think the Texans now have the secondary that can make up for uh, injuries to the front seven? Or is Houston going to be, you know, toast again if, you know, Watt or Merciless or Clowney or you know, anybody else that's integral to the front seven uh, deals with injury issues? You see, um, due, to the way, due to the way that um, Irish um, houses are made, there's actually no wood around me right now to knock on. So, uh, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> but, um do I think they can survive without it? I don't think, because I think the front seven sets a lot of the tone for the defense. Um, do I think it'll it, it will it be as bad as last year? No, I don't think it will be. I think Matthew and Colvin do make it better. I think like one of my one of my running theories is that Colvin is probably going to get kicked to the outside, and Kevin Johnson's going to get moved back into the slot, mm-hmm. which I think he's been the bet he's been better at um, in his in his past showings, and I think he actually has the foot speed to match a lot of slot receivers. Plus, he's got, really good, he's got a really good pedal, he's got really good hips, and his hand usage is also not too bad. So, in order to try to kind of like build up Kevin Johnson again, I think Aaron Colvin, having him on the outside, would also help in terms of just, let's try and, let's try and improve the general standing of the secondary. Whether it'll be able to overcome, it's going to be harder. To, it's going to be hard to tell. If Romeo Cornell can work some kind of coverage magic, then yeah, sure, it can, it can happen. But again, if you have a really good front seven, it, it kind of makes your it kind of makes the secondary job a whole lot easier. Like Carolina is a very very good example of that in terms of mm-hmm. investing heavily in the front seven, and then kind of just you allows you to be very lax in terms of how much money you want to invest in the secondary because your front seven is just going to erase the run game and can get consistent pressure on the quarterback. So it makes passing a, passing as a whole a lot harder to do. So if you take if you 
And if you force more pressure on onto the secondary, I'm not sh I'm not I'm not sure if the Texans can hold it. It'll it's, it's a wait and see kind of thing for now. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I think Carolina's a great example of that also just having, you know, linebackers who are really fast and an insanely deep uh, pass rush where your defensive backs have to cover less ground for less time too as well. But I don't I don't I think whatever happens in the secondary is kind of that a bonus. In a way I think this defense is again gonna be completely up to the front seven. Their ability to you know have negative plays on first and second down with the run and then be able to get pass rushes on third down. And if the pass rush isn't there, the secondary is gonna be bad. I think, you know, even though adding Matthew and Colvin will help that instead of being, you know, the 30th worst defensive football uh, this year, I think they'd probably be like, you know, the 20th if the pass rush isn't great. But pass rush is great. Houston should be able to kind of leap back into that, you know, top eight, mm -hmm. top six, you know, top ten range that we're accustomed to. Yeah. No, it's, again, as it has been for the past few years with Houston, it's if and or both. If like if this happens, then this can happen. If not, then this will probably happen. It's it's just it's just the way it's just the way the defense and as like being a Texans fan as a whole work. You you live with caveats. Mhm. Mm yeah, I could be happy if this is yeah. happened, but that never happens. At all. Exactly. If I if I had just this thing in my life, I'd be I'd be set. Which is a good lesson to have because nothing's ever gonna be perfect. There's always gonna be something wrong no matter what. Uh, so all you can do is just enjoy what you have, mitigate those bad things. Uh, the, so on the offensive line, that was the other big hole. You, the Texans had two big holes this year. They had holes in the secondary and holes in the offensive line. And so the offensive line, they signed Zach Fulton for four years, $28 million. And they signed Tineo Calamente for three years, $4 million a year, or three years, $4 million as well. Another way to say it, and they also signed Sancho Henderson, who's a right tackle, for a one-year deal with incentives worth up to $4 million. Uh, so similar to the secondary, Luke, did you like the strategy of spending a little bit on three players, or do you wish Houston invested more in the offensive line and went all in on a player like Andrew Lor Norwell or Nate Soldier, like we discussed earlier? Um, I no, I think I think the Kelamente and Fulton signings are probably the better way to go in terms of similar similar to Colvin. I think it's you invest you invest a small but reasonable amount on guys that you think okay, I've seen them play a little bit. And I've kind of liked what they've brought to the table. So okay, let's let's put a little bit more. Let's give them a lot more playing time, and let's see how far we can push that in, in terms of low ceiling or sorry, low floor, high ceiling kind of thing. And if not, do we know okay, this guy can do this thing. This guy can do this thing as the last or like as a last resource. And if and if it turns out to be a lot better, then okay, these deals are very very good for us for a number of years. I prefer that over. Okay, we're just going to invest 16 million in terms of or 16 million on Nate Solder, and if he turns out to be not good, or if the fit isn't it's not isn't as cozy as we'd like, then we're kind of hamstrung with that contract, and we're hamstrung with that player. So I think it benefits. I think it's a better for a certain degree, although the allure of signing like an Andrew Norwell is quite enticing. But yeah, I think I think it just especially with offensive line too, because a lot of those players can be just flexible in terms of where you can put them on the line. I think Calamante played tackle guard and center last year for the uh, for the Saints. Um, so, again, that's versatility, which which is probably why Jeff Allen is still on the roster, um, because he can, he can play one other position apart from guard. So, yeah, investing in more players is probably the way to go. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I prefer this as well, too. And, you know, Norwell is, I think, probably the fifth best guard in football. You know, paying him $12 million, $13 million is a lot. You know, not even Brandon Brooks has paid that much. Not even David DeCastro has paid that much. I mean, he's the highest paid offensive guard in football. And, you know, it's a lot, but, again, this they have to pay for bringing him there. And I think he would have been, you know, great in Houston and all that, but I would prefer to have, you know, more shots and more spins and to mitigate that money and to have that money be able to spin, you know, elsewhere. And these are two good players, too. Like, I, I got done watching both of them. And, you know, Fulton is an outside zone run blocker. He has two great first steps. He has really great outside zone steps. I like how deep he gets with, gets with his first step and how much ground he gains. He also makes a really difficult block and look easy, which is that one versus one outside zone block where you have to get the outside shoulder and drive the off defensive lineman off the line of scrimmage. And he does that really well. And he also does it without needing a lot of help from the inside you know, blocker he's supposed to be double teamed with on those kind of more outside uh, techniques that you're at pre-snap. Um, he's also a really good pass blocker, and it's not because he has, like, really great punch at all, but he has good hand placement, and he also has a great anchor. So if you bull rush him, he's kind of like, you know, Black Panther where he can, you know, suck in the connect in energy and sit pretty quickly, and you're going to draw him back maybe, you know, a yard, maybe, you know, two yards, whatever. But after that, he's going to sit and be able to hold his own and pass protection, not allow, you know, anybody to get around him from there. And, you know, like you mentioned also with Colvin, being unable to turn look for the football. Uh, Fulton has the same thing about the offensive line version where the Texans have not had any offensive linemen, aside from you know, Brooks and Dwayne Brown, that could actually get to the second level of the front seven. Fulton's of the exact same mode. The guy can't get to the second level. When he gets there, all this technique that he has on the first level kind of goes awry, and he's grabbing. He just Sometimes he just tackles the guy because he's had enough of missing his block, but for whatever reason, he can't punch and hold and knock that block off. He's also not a very good puller, but you know, overall, for a guy who can play center and guard for seven million dollars a year, who's you know above average player, I think it's a good deal. Kelmente is not as skilled or as talented of an offensive lineman. He's more of a brute, but that's not to say that he doesn't have any uh, any talent or you know, skill whatsoever. He's just more of a stronger guy, and he gets through with his strength. And it's kind of the same problem with him. He has trouble getting to the second level. He's not as good of a pass blocker because he doesn't lateral quickness, but you know, the guy can drive guys off the ball. He's really good in inside zone double teams, and so he's a lot of he's a lot of fun to watch too. So I think both those guys could start for sure at guard, and I think Houston's better off having both Fulton and Kelamente than only having you know Andrew Nolo and Nate Solder. I think Brian Gain did a great job with both those signings. Yeah, um, what I'm what I'm curious to find out because I've kind of been off in my own uh, DB based world. Uh, and I haven't really taken a look at uh, Kilimante or Fulton. So for me, the, the question which I got to ask is, does the style of Kilimante and Fulton and the schemes that, in which they've come with lean any towards any particular scheme change for the Texans in particular? Because, like I, I've I've developed like an in an unhealthy obsession with the Texans' run game, um, particularly the run directions, which have kind of just been like baffling to me over the past two years just to see how much Bill O'Brien's been running the ball up the gut. So to me hearing, oh, we might be like, we're signing an outside zone based guard. is just like, wait, you you mean we might actually put the ball outside of the tackles? Is, mm-hmm. is this something which might happen? I I mean, I think so, but 
it would make too much sense because both these guys are <laughs> you know, really good outside zone blockers. Kelamente is too. I, Kelamente would be better more with more inside zone dive plays, but he's a he's a good enough outside zone blocker. Bolton's an all outside zone guy. Uh, Nick Barnes a really good outside zone blocker. Julian Davenport's a good outside zone blocker. We have no idea who the Texans' right tackle is going to be. Lamar Miller is a very good outside zone runner. Uh, Deontay Foreman's a good outside zone runner too. So, you know, based off what they have here already, based on who they signed, and based on the troubles they've had with previous you know offensive run schemes, I'm expecting Houston to go back to being an outside zone team, and I think it would be a much better you know rushing attack um, if they do that sort of thing. But you know we've said this multiple times, we speculated a lot, and Bill Bryan continues to just throw Lamar Miller up the middle over and over again and run those power plays and pulling plays. Uh, but then, you know, so I, I expect more outside zone and then also a lot more you new know, zone read where you can make the pretty much the same sort of blocks are made. It's just uh, who gets the ball and who you block, you know, changes from there. But I, I think and I assume and I hope that it's seen more of an outside zone run scheme this season based off, you know, what the Texans now have. Yeah. No, I think I think what you said earlier should be the unofficial motto for the Texans run game. It's just it makes too much sense. It's just I I love I love that idea. Just like every everything you look at from a, a like an analytical or an empirical um, angle is just it would lead you to believe okay this is what should happen. It makes too much sense, and then it, the complete opposite happens. You're just sitting there like wondering what the heck has gone wrong. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny yeah. because like the team is like I don't know in the past few years they've been maybe like seventy percent smart, but they just have this like just dark dreary you know. <laughs> 30% of them that just fills them up with these terrible and awful ideas. And, uh, and like, I think another good example is Mike Vrabel last year playing a ton of zone coverage against Jacksonville whenever they're just running or they're playing a lot of tight press man coverage against Jacksonville. They're just running slants and ends and they don't have the cornerbacks to keep up. And so you just see so many little things like that or giving away, you know, a second round pick for salary cap space. They used to Andre, son, Andre Howe, Jay Prosh and CJ Fedorowicz. So there's, and a reasonable, you know, smart idea there, uh, but rarely ever is it fully entirely smart. They just have to, you know, get drunk and say dumb things sometimes. Yeah, it's they're they're, they're seventy five percent of a good idea, and and I think I think that's a good that's a good amount. It's just the twenty five is gonna is gonna be the one that's gonna cause you to have gray hairs. Mm-hmm. And then the five percent are just gonna be just life-changing, terrible decisions like <laughs> you know, signing name redacted, like signing Larry, uh, Jeff Allen over Brand Brooks, like signing Ed Reed over Glover Quinn, and uh, and those sorts of decisions. Now, yeah. what do you think the Texans' offensive line is gonna be next year? If you had to give me a starting five right now, and also based off that start, starting five, are you okay with that? Are you comfortable with putting Deshaun Watson? behind those guys for 16 games in 2018. Ooh, okay, so left tackle, um, Julian Davenport, left guard, probably uh, Kelamente, center Nick Martin, right guard Zach Fulton, and then right tackle, right tackle, I'd probably go Chris Clark. And to answer the second question, I mean, I... Yeah, I'd, I'd be comfortable with it because I know it's gonna it's gonna take time for it to develop. Nick Martin is still developing. Julian Davenport is still developing. I'm going to potentially assume that there is another body based, uh, which the Texans will bring in from draft or from um, undrafted free agency, so that there there's there's time for it to develop. 
I don't think it's going to be catastrophic, but I don't think it's going to just wow us in terms of oh wow this is this, this is really good because um, I don't I don't think there's there's enough talent there just yet. But I think it's got time to mature, and I'm okay with letting it mature for now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my I think it's gonna be Davenport. I like Calamante playing left guard more than right guard, even though I know Fulton's more of a left guard than a right guard. But because of how much stronger Calamante is than Fulton, I think pairing him with a little bit weaker, you know, because that's what's going to depend on Davenport this year and you know for the rest of his career is if he can get strong, you know, strong enough to be able to be, uh, be able to suffocate blocks immediately and be able to drive guys off the line of scrimmage. And if he has the feet, he has the hands, he has the arm length, he has the size, uh, and also, <laughs> Wade Smith is wrong. You know, Davenport's a left tackle, not a right tackle, also. But I think Kelamente would be better to pair with Davenport than playing him on the right side. So I think then Nick Martin's be center, of course. And I think we're going to see Fulton at right guard. And you have – I mean, I can't – you have Greg Mendes yeah, yeah, like no. center and guard to back up. And he can start in the outside zone scheme. He's a starting – you know, he's a starting guard or center in outside zone scheme. He's a starting center in any scheme. And so I think that's a great third player to have there. And you have Fulton at right guard. And then – Right tackle, I think it's going to be some combination of either Santrell Henderson, Jeff Allen, or Chris Clark, and, you know, whatever, bring on the competition. It's not the worst thing in the world to have. But I do think Houston really five-cent right tackle situation. And I also hope that they draft an offensive tackle maybe in the fourth round, too. They could throw in and compete. And I, won't, I wouldn't give Davenport the left tackle spot right away as much as I like him as a prospect and a player. But uh, I think, you know, having competition at the tackle positions, kind of being set at center and guard, uh, entering the summer, I think would be good enough, and you know I'm fine with that for Deshaun Watson. Obviously, it could be better if they worked out the Dwayne Brown situation a lot better than they did. But you know, for what they have right now, what was available for them this off season, and the draft capital they had, I think it's a perfectly you know good spot uh, for this offensive line. Yeah, no, I I think for for what it is right now and even I think Central Henderson offers a little bit in terms of just security, much in the same way of Chris Clark of that if it all goes to if it all goes to hell in the handbasket, you're just like, Okay, we can we can put these guys in and hopefully rely on them for just like a couple of a couple of snaps or a couple of games even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, again the Texans I think were thirtieth in just sack rate last year and they were thirty second in pressure rate. And you know, I'm I I wish we could have those numbers where it was just Deshaun Watson quarterback and just Tom Savage at quarterback. I'm really excited for whenever the Football Outsiders perspective comes out in 2000 this year. I'm so stupid. I'm going to say 2018. And uh, so whenever it comes out this year, I'm excited to see that with without pressure and with pressure for Tom Savage and Deshaun Watson, I think those numbers are going to be hilarious. But, uh, you know, the offensive <laughs> line was really bad. And, a lot, and you know, Tom Savage is the worst offensive line the Texans had last year. So I'm also just kind of Interested just by having Watson there for a full year, how much it will ha- you know help the pass protection for this offensive line? Yeah, because again, like I, whenever I think of Tom Savage, I think of the first game of the season against the Jaguars. Because like I, I mentioned, I mentioned it in the Colvin piece. It's just like I've watched, I've watched that game so many times now. Um, it's it's like a horrible, horrible nightmare that just keeps repeating itself, and I I can't stop watching Tom Savage get sacked. I like it's it's just you're scree you're sitting there screaming throw the ball please throw the ball 
and mm-hmm. he's just not, and it's just Kelly Campbell over and over again, just crashing into him like a, like waves into a, like a really old uh, rocky harbor, just everything starting to crumble, crumble away. Hopefully, it won't be like that this season. Yeah, I hope not either. And you know, I, I such a that savage thing is just so so silly for that team that have the quarterback needs they had during 2014 to come away with Tom Savage to. You know, just because the Texans drafted him, you hear all you know for three or four years that hey, you know we have Savage, you know give him time to develop, he can be good. You know this man, he plays and immediately you know that he's not going to be good. And then you go into season with him as a starter, and you tell everybody he's not going to be good, and then he's not good, and then you just you know you owe me an apology for him not being good because I told you, you know it's obvious he's not going to be good. <laughs> and it uh, it's just such a it's just such a long endeavor to undertake four years to just prove a point and you know it happened with Savage and it's me good to I can't believe he got another deal too by the way gosh but uh, yeah, let's, it's uh, good that he's not playing football for Houston ever again <laughs> oh oh just just wait listen we brought back Brandon Whedon we can't stand on the moral high ground here okay that's a good point too well you know Savage is going to end up playing for an AFC South team it just has to happen and for whatever <laughs> reason they love uh they love incest and the AFC South quarterbacks where you have Blaine Gabbard who went to Tennessee recently. And, you know, that's one of my favorite things about this division too is how all these quarterbacks have played for each other one way or the other. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just one weird circle jerk just keeps on going around. Every, every, <laughs> everyone gets a shot. I'm expecting Ryan Mallett to just, like, wind up in Indianapolis or Jacksonville one of these days. He's just like, oh. Oh, for sure. Yeah, nice to see you again. How have you yeah, been? Yeah, he's a... And he's a free agent right now as well, too. Oh, no. <laughs> That's an omen right there, if ever I, if ever I see it. Yeah, when Houston needs a, set, a backup quarterback because they don't draft him. <laughs> and I, I like yeah. that the circle journey keeps going around. It's a, it's like a Casey Musgrave song, except not as pretty. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's, it's cyclical. Everything is going through the cycle, and just the cycle is AFC quarterbacks and Texans quarterbacks just coming back around. Yeah, I know from one of those game previews I wrote, I did a Venn diagram of each quarterback and which other South teams they played for, and it's like a four-way Venn diagram, and that's for sure something that I need to go back and open up and add, Brian, uh, add Blaine Gabbert's name to it. Was was there one quarterback which intersected all four? I don't believe so, but there is one that played on all three, and I can't remember off the top of my head. But it's, just an, it's a hilarious list. No, well, yeah, he, he played for Tennessee, Indy, but he didn't uh, play for Jacksonville. Okay. Oh, Kim. Kerry Collins? Kerry Collins. But he didn't Kerry play Collins. for Houston or Jacksonville. Dang it, he didn't. Um, and no, I'm going to try. I'm gonna try and, yeah, this, yeah, this is going to ruin me. I'm going to try and figure out uh, if there one which actually has or at least three of them. Okay, that's besides the point. I'll be here all evening thinking about that. <laughs> for, for yeah, here. Some, if you're if you're in Houston, you're a Texans fan. We'll play some dream games. The three ones to play are: name every Texan safety since Glover Quinn, Daniel Manning. Name every quarterback Andre Johnson caught pass from, and name every quarterback that's played for multiple teams in AFC South and try guess which ones play for three different teams. That's a yeah. party right there. That yeah, that is definitely a party, especially with some. I don't think you even need hard liquor to do that. I think you could just do that with beer and you can still get smashed. All you need is some sunshine and, uh, and a patio, and you have a party right there. You don't even need the alcohol. 
Oh, boy. No, so, it's, it's, yeah, go on. We, we've talked a lot about just now about the moves the Texans did make, but, you know, we're all faux general managers. We're all losers sitting inside of our bedrooms watch, talking about football and watching football instead of going out there and living our lives. And so whenever you put this much effort to learn about the game and understand the game and write about the game and learn about players around the league and this and that, uh, you want to make decisions as well, and there's ideas that you come up with that you hope you know, your team actually you brings to fruition. Were there any moves that you wish the Texans made that they did not make? Um, Austin Severi and Jenkins. That one was. I want. I wanted it. I didn't think it was going to happen, but I would have. I would have loved to have him. I've loved his game since college. In fact, one of the very one of the very very early things that I wrote on Battle Red Blog was. Uh, a scouting report slash uh, love letter to Austin Terry and Jenkins, <laughs> um, which is which is still lurking around here, so lurking around somewhere. Um, but yeah, just in terms of, he's about six seven, two sixty five or so. He runs like an he runs like a deer. Like he was, and while I was doing the Colvin piece, um, the Jets game came up, and yeah, he was he was giving Telvin Smith and Miles Jack problems. Like he was he was a handful. And I was just like. It rekindled the love because I hadn't seen him in a long time because he went to Tampa. And he kind of got kicked around the league a little bit, didn't really pan out there. Went to, went to the Jets and kind of just became became really good again. And he's now gone to Jacksonville, which is really annoying because uh, now the Texans are going to have to deal with them, and I'm not sure if they can. But yeah, just in terms of finding a tight end, and I think he was a really underrated one that could have come in and done a very very good job in terms of. He's good as a blocker, and he is very, very good as a pass catcher too. Or I think he's got a lot of upside to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know like efficiency wise, he was bad last year, and like effective, you know, effectiveness wise, he was bad in New York. But you know, like the guy moves, and he had some big games last year. He's a great athlete, and he can block a little bit. And like you're saying, you know, he's able to get around linebackers like Miles Jack and Telvin Smith. And that's enormous. So two of the best coverage linebackers in football. And, you know, having one of the McCowns throw the football to you is obviously going to affect your efficiency stats. And I liked I liked uh, Safarian Jenkins too, as a kind of a buy low, you know, high reward short contract that you want again the second wave of free agency. And the contract he signed the Jaguars really wasn't that big considering, and it was a much better contract to sign him for as much as he did inside Trey Burden as excited body is for you know, Burden on in Chicago this year. Um, mm-hmm. If you had to pick pick one, what, who, which tight end would you rather have? Eric Ebron, Austin Safarian Jenkins, or Jason Marrow? Oh, oh, you're 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 playing with you're playing with my wait. Was that the 2014, 2013, or sorry, twenty twelve draft? Amaro um, and Jenkins are fourteen, and I think Ebron is fourteen as well too. Oh they're, yeah, yeah Ebron was fourteen. Yeah, they're all wow. That was that was such a fun tight end class. I remember that. Uh, trying to, I'm trying to think who else was in that class. Oh, Jace, uh No, that was Travis Kelsey was 13. Sorry. Um, yeah, no, I'm I'm still taking uh, Austin Severian Jenkins. Although I kind of like Ebron, even though he can't catch the football. He's 24. Like Eric Ebron's 24. Austin Severian Jenkins is 25, and Chase Marrow I think is 25 also. Yeah, I'm. I'm not touching Amaro full stop. I. I don't. I don't think he's good. But you could. You. I could be. I could be convinced to getting Eric Ebron. 
Um, but no, I'm, my first and only love is Austin Severian Jenkins, and I ain't devi- deviating away from that. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, so the 2014 NFL draft class, you have Eric Ebron, was selected 10th, Austin Severian Jenkins, second round pick 38, Jason Merrow, second round pick 49. And then the rest of the tight ends were Troy Nicholas, second round pick 52 from Arizona, Fedorowicz, third round pick 65, Richard Rodgers in Green Bay, third round pick 98, Crocker Gilmore, Baltimore, third round 99, Arthur Lynch, Miami, fifth round 155, Ted Bolzer, Washington, seventh round 217, and Pittsburgh, Rob Blanchflower, seventh round pick 230. Yeah, I loved Arthur Lynch. He just, there was just nothing ever became of him, unfortunately. But if like if you think that class was sick, the 2013 tight end class is just the weirdest one because that had Tyler Eifert, Sackert, uh-huh. um, who else? Gavin Escobar, weird one. Vance McDonald, <laughs> uh, Travis Kelsey. Uh, what else did we have here? We had Jordan Reed, who was down in the third round at pick number 85. Uh, Dion Sims, he was another one that was in the 2013 draft. Levine Toyololo, uh, who else? I'm sorry, I'm scrolling down fast as I can. Luke Wilson, for uh, who plays for Seattle, I believe scored a touchdown against the Texans this year. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head. Michael Rivera, um, who else? Who else? Who else? Who else? Who else? Who else? Ryan Griffin, uh, bless. It really was a good class. Um, and then Michael Williams to Detroit also, and a, and, a, and a couple of others. But yeah, there were, I believe, three Pro Bowler, three Pro Bowl tight ends that came out of that class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, three Bowl, three, three Pro Bowl tight ends: Tyler Eifert, um, J. Travis Kelsey, and Reed. Zach Ertz, and Zach Ertz, or sorry, and Jordan Reed. So four, four, four. Yeah. yeah that wow, that was a loaded tight end class. Yeah. Yeah. No. So and then, uh, listen. You're not going to get me to take any of them over Austin Severian Jenkins. It's not happening. <laughs> That's good. Uh, the one, the one move that I wish Houston made was, of course, what I wrote about was signing Cameron Fleming. I thought Fleming was going to be signed on a multi-year contract at you know six to seven million dollars a year. Uh, not only because he's a good player, but because of the way this tackle class is, where there's no tackles available and everybody needs tackles and. We live in a world where Russell Okun is going to make $11.5 million this year, and that's mm-hmm. in, insane. Uh, Malik Watson is going to make like $10 million in Denver this year, which is you know insane as well, too. And so because of that, I thought for sure Fleming would get those sorts of deals, and he didn't. He signed in Dallas for one year, $4 million. He's going to star in Dallas, and he's going to be good. And he was just as good of a pass blocker as – Solder was in their playoff run uh, in New England. He's you know strong. You can't really beat him with the inside move. You can edge rush around him, but he has such a good little drop step that he's able to you know, deal with edge rush as well. And he hasn't been a good run blocker, but you don't really know if he's a good run blocker or not or if he isn't a good run blocker because the Patriots' running attack is completely up the middle with their guard, center, and fullback where he's just blocking defensive ends. But he has a size to so be a good run blocker. And so I think, you know, Dallas got a huge deal. They can play him at right tackle. They can lay out Collins to right guard to his more natural position where he won't have as many false starts and holding penalties and those sorts of things. And, you know, I, I think with the tackle position that they have, like Fleming and Santrell Henderson is much better than maybe Chris Clark, maybe Jeff Allen, maybe Santrell Henderson, maybe they can dress him on the fourth round. And for one year, $4 million, I think that was too good of an opportunity to pass up and I, don't, I mean, obviously it's not going to be, you know, sort of 
decision that was like, you know, signing Brand, Jeff Allen for Brand Brooks. But I think next year, whenever it's week seven, and if the offensive line is in pass protecting well and, you know, Fleming's playing well in Dallas, I think there's going to be a lot of questions of, you know, why didn't the Texans sign this guy when they could have and they should have. And I think that's going to be one of those things that's going to happen this year where I think right tackle is a big hole on this offensive line. And I think it's going to be a, a hindsight thing we're going to see a lot of things about is that why didn't they do something right tackle? And Fleming was there. He was available. I think Houston really kind of botched that by not going out and getting him. Yeah. I'm actually curious as to why you think Fleming didn't get a big contract. So. Uh, you know, I really don't know. I think part of it may just be he played New England. New England didn't, wasn't going to start him. They didn't start him the first week against Tennessee. Uh, blocking for Tom Brady kind of overcompensates for, you know, offensive linemen. Uh, Scaramenci has a great offensive line coach. Maybe that's part of his role, too. I think they didn't think that maybe they could get the same thing out of him that other teams could have out of New England. Also, you know, sometimes the NFL is wrong. And uh, teams are wrong. I think this is one of the situations where, you know, the, the football is wrong on this one. And uh, me, very stupid, and uh, sitting at home is going is to end up being right on this one. But I really couldn't tell you. I, there's really not a lot of injury concerns there. I think the biggest thing is probably a lot more road-to-world scouting where you see he didn't play here, he didn't play here. Why was he benched here? Uh, this is a situation he's playing under. And that's really the best guess I have because just looking at him and watching him play, there really isn't any reason why he only got one year, four million dollar contract. No, that's, that's, that's interesting because I was I was casting my eye over the remaining free agents that were still on the still on the board, and I was I had I had a brief moment of just like fond reminiscing of uh, Greg Robinson, mm-hmm. the second yeah the second overall pick from the um, from the 2014 draft, and I was. I just I just have this idea in my head because he's still only 25. Where it's just like, yeah, if you, if I'd, I'd take him on a one-year contract and try and slot him in at left guard with the, with the whole idea of just okay, we're not going to try and convince ourselves he's a tackle anymore. Let's yeah, just, for sure. He's big, he's big, he's strong. Let's just put him at guard. Let's try, let's get him to maul some people and see what happens. I thought I thought that would have been a cool little side project uh, to see to see if it could get working, but I don't know. Greg Robinson's obviously not good enough for the NFL anymore. It's also weird to see Coney Ely. Also, he's still on the market. Because, yeah. um, like, I actually would like the Texans to take a look at him as a whole because I think they could do with and ostensibly a good pass rusher or just even more help at, pass, uh, at defensive end because the entire team, the defensive line has been built for three, four fronts, which, again, we could be going back into that this year, but I think have some kind of versatility when you want to flex into 4-3 and even if you want just a situational pass rusher I think you could do a lot worse than Ely on like a one year even like a 1.5 or maybe even a 2.5 deal or so I think that would be mm-hmm. a nice little thing just to kind of round out your team because I think that's what free agency should be like I said before which is you're finding little guys to just augment what you what is your strengths you already have mm-hmm no, I think those two uh, RDAs are great for you know, players that are available right now because right now the Texans have $31 million in cap space, and they really have two options. They can either go even more in on this season or they can re-sign Jadavion Clowney right now, which they could also do things like you know cut Cream Jackson or Jeff Allen, go even more in on this year if they want to, uh, or they can save that money and focus on re-signing Jadavion Clowney and resign to a deal that is front-loaded so that way they can 
pay less of him if he gets injured and or whenever they cut him whenever he's in his fourth year of his deal, which happens to everybody in the NFL. But there are still good, you know, players left over in free agency. Uh, I like Ely. It's hard to find interior pass rushers. If you go if you go four down lineman sets, he'd be a great three technique rusher. And even in your base three four, you know, him there is better than you know Carlos Watkins or you know Christian Covington. Uh, I also still like the idea of going out and getting outside receiver. I kind of, I wish Houston went after Pryor because I like Will Fuller as like a slot deep threat. I can just see him splitting safeties down the middle, which would just open up easier routes for DeAndre Hopkins and mystery unknown wide receiver X from the outside. And so, like, I like Dontrell Inman. I still like Jeremy Macklin, even though he's 29 years old. Uh, I still think there's more to him there that's available. I know Kansas City didn't use him the best last year or two years ago, and he dealt with injuries. And also playing for Joe Flacco will ruin a wide receiver's career. And also at edge rusher, too, I like uh, I like Elvis Dumerville. Like, just have him only rush in the fourth quarter. Have him only rush on third down. So I think he could have a, a career – kind of like how Dwight Freeney had at the end of his career in Arizona where he just played 15 snaps and they're all pass rushing situations and that was all he was used for. And Dumerville had like 42 pressures last year calling football outsiders. He was you know, top 25 in the league. Uh, you could probably get him for one year, $4 million, and just use him as a bullpen arm. And I like that idea as well, too, for Houston. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and going back to receivers, I'd actually like to kick the tires on uh, Jordan Matthews. Who, yeah. who unfortunately got a little bit of a raw deal in that he got traded from Philly to Buffalo, was still injured at the time of the trade and kind of had to play a little bit hurt throughout the season and then walked into the Buffalo quarterback mess. So he never really got to display his full kind of um, full kind of value and was kind of, I think, also hurt a little bit because everyone was in the mode of defending Tyrod Matthew, or sorry, Tyrod Taylor. Mm-hmm. Um and sort of bigging it, bigging up, and I think it hurts Matthews a lot because some of that, uh, some of the stuff regarding Taylor was highlighted on the fact that his receivers just couldn't get open. And in the case of Zay Jones and George Matthews, yeah, they struggled to get open at times. But I think you put them in a system where there's already a well-established quarterback. There's no conflict or strife between the head coach and the quarterback in terms of system, what they want to do, what they are going to do. And also, the parts around him are going to be a lot better. He's going to have Will Fuller and DeAndre Hopkins create space. So I like the idea of, again, Matthews is somebody who is 24. Yeah. So he's, he's mm-hmm. 20. So he's 24, so you've still got a lot of time on him. And he's a big slot receiver. Like, he's 6'2". He's got a little bit of mobility to him. He ran, like, a 4.49 at the Combine. So I think his uh, spark score wasn't that bad also. So I think he's definitely somebody that you'd want to take a look at and just see, okay, let's find out if we've got anything here to kind of add to the team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. Um, and the, the last guy I have, I, you know, like I said earlier, you can never have enough edge rushers and defensive backs. I think Altron Werner would be a good he's – he's 29 years old. He had that one great year um, in Tennessee, then got that big contract in Tampa and wasn't nearly as good. But he was pretty good last year. And I think, you know, he's only 29 – why not try to sign him for a one-year deal, maybe something similar that Morris Claiborne got, or you sign him for one year, $5 million. And then in case Kevin Johnson's bad, in case Jonathan Joseph gets injured, in case, you know, Kareem Jackson's still bad, you have another guy there who can play, you know, cornerback. And, you know, having six cornerbacks isn't isn't bad. And with the cast race they have, I think that'd be another guy who they can go out and get. And the ultimate one, of course, would be 
signed Jonathan Hankins to like $8 million a year, moving DJ Reader from defensive tackle, from de- nose tackle to defensive tackle, putting Hankins at nose tackle, and only having him play first and second downs and just be like the best run defense of all time. Because the opportunity is there as well, too, for Houston. And so I, I think even though free agency has been quiet lately, I think a lot of the teams are waiting until after the draft happens where they can kind of fill up the rest of their team and then or get the players that they want you know, based on the scout they've done for the draft and then wait until afterwards to fill up the rest of their team. But I think from now until the draft is going to be quiet and then afterwards you'll see Houston be a lot more active. And hopefully some of these guys are, are guys that Houston goes after and at that point in time comes around. Yeah, indeed. I think Hankins would be a fantastic addition because still young, still developing, and he would also give the Texans a lot more flexibility in terms of, okay, we can place him here and we can move around a ton of different pieces. Which, again, on the on the defensive line, such as the Texans, which likes to have J.J. Watt flex in between playing as a three-tech and playing as a seven-tech, that's, that's something which you really, really want to be able to do. And I think just adding, like, adding, again, going back and talking about it again, Add to, add to your strengths. Just keep tweaking away at it, keep pushing it, because if you do have injuries, they're not going to impact the team as heavily as they would if you just said, okay, we're going to stamp out with these guys. If it gets injured, we're not going to be in well stead, but we figure we can get out of it somewhere, some kind. Yeah. Um, no, so I have one last question for you before we in today's show, and it's kind of a... I guess it's not coming out today. So in the 2014 draft class, there's three really great pass rushers. You have Aaron Donald, you have Khalil Mack, and you have Jadavion Clowney. If, regardless of the last five years from today on, if you could have one of the three players, who do you think, if you could have one of the three players, which one would you pick and why? Uh, Clowney, Mack, and Aaron Donald from 2018 to the end of their career? Oh... Oh, you see, now that's... Okay, well, first off, this is going to sound slightly heretical. It wouldn't be Clowney. Um, it wouldn't be Clowney because he's this far into his career and his hands... His, tech, his technique isn't quite there, but he can get away with it still because he's just a stupidly physical freak. And as he gets older, that stuff's going to go away. Um, unless, unless he becomes like a Julius Peppers-type figure and he figures out all of the kind of technique thing, in which case, good lord, we're going to have a, you're going to have a monster on our hands. But in terms of between Donald or Mac, oh, that's, that's, that's such a difficult, difficult choice. Um, interior pressure is king, so I'm going to go Donald, um, purely, purely because if you can get, if you're running out the, if you're just pushing straight pocket straight back, or if you're getting a defensive lineman straight in the face of the quarterback immediately, which is what Donald does, that creates the most uh, that creates the most disruption. Whereas Mac, who is all he's a great, fantastic player, it's just he's working from the edge. And I know edge rushers are typically a little bit harder to find than interior pressure, but just Donald's so so good. He's he's like another version of JJ Watt, and some would say he's a little bit better. So another version of that, I would I would take that very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it would have to be Donald for sure. Um, you know, Max kind of cooled off a little bit, but part of that's because he's willing to put in the front seven. And Clownia is a better run defender than Donald is, but the pass rushing stuff isn't there all the way. And also, no matter how, like, Clownia could play in the next three years without missing a game, and you'd still be kind of worried about, you know, injuries in the back of your head during that time. 
But I think yeah. it, I think it'd be Don without without Dow. I think Don can go down as the best interior pass rusher. Um, maybe maybe in NFL history, it really depends on how you want to classify Watt and how much long if Watt is ever healthy again uh, to begin with. But I think Donald is the guy out of those three. Yeah, I think Donald will be. I don't th- like. I don't think Donald's ever going to approach the numbers, and I think the numbers will get a lot of the attention in terms of. Oh yeah, JJ Watt was not only good from the inside, but he was stats good. Um, hashtag stats good. Um, <laughs> which which Donald has he's been from a non typical stats point uh, non typical stats point of view in terms of pressures, um, quarterback hits or so. It's just he hasn't had the sacks. And as we all know, pass rushing as a whole is to re- usually derived down to one singular number, which is, hey, yo, did you get the quarterback on the ground? And it's just like, well, Donald did it maybe. He, sorry, he did. He had two double-digit sack seasons, which were, I think, the past two. Um, and that's not really great, even though you're, the, you're going against the fact that he's playing in a position which usually doesn't produce those kind of numbers. And the fact that he is, and he's producing with such consistency, is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, and the fact that Donald only has, let's see, so far in his career, he only has 39 sacks, so from his rookie year, 9, 11, 8, 11, it really is incredible what Watt did, uh, you know, having 20 sacks, playing, you know, 3, 4 defensive end like he did. Uh, Clowney has 20 sacks, Donald has 39 sacks, and Mack has 40 and a half sacks. And Mack had 4 sacks, 15 sacks, 11 sacks, 10 and a half sacks, but uh, I'm kind of I, I was surprised. I thought Donald had more sacks than Mac. I guess that kind of stuck up on me. But you forget Mac has those games where he gets four sacks in a game, and that's what kind yeah. of keeps him it keeps him up there. Yeah, it's usually the games against Denver. Um, it's usually yeah. when it happens, especially especially when certain uh, certain tall quarterbacks who uh, hail from Arizona or no, or sorry, play the college ball at Arizona are uh, playing because that, that was. Prior prior to Redacted's arrival, um, my most outstanding memory of him was watching him getting sacked by Khalil Mack four times in one game, uh, which I which I kind of found a little bit funny. Um, yeah, no, I I think Mack Mac as a whole is I think Mack's the combination of Donald and Clowney to a certain degree. I think he's got the physicality of Clowney a little to a little bit less, but he's got the technique of Donald and he's got that first step. Mm-hmm. Like he's he's, he's Perfect for what what you look at of an edge rusher. It's just what the, what Donald does. It's just unfair. Like you see the you see God bless Vine for no longer being with us, but you would see Vines of just Donald's first step, first step and his hands just doing like an an arm over, and you're just like, wow, no nobody nobody that's 280 like 300 pounds or so should be able to move that fast. And yes, yeah. he he just does it every single time. You're just sitting there going. That's horrifying. That's absolutely horrifying. Like if I were, if I was a quarterback, I would melt if I knew somebody that that large <laughs> was, could get to me that quickly. And he's so close to you as well too. Like you just like be under the center and just look at him in the eyes every play. <laughs> yeah. That's very it's, annoying. Yeah. No. I think a generally good rule for NFL quarterbacks should be let's keep Aaron Donald at arm's reach. And during and if he's playing the, if he's playing like right in front of you, it's just like you can't really do that a lot. Because he's, he's literally one guy away from you at all times, and he's usually going to beat that one guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, and that may be something I may want to go back and write, too, is write, do a film on each Mac, Clowney, and you know, Donald, and take a guess on who have, who's going to end up having the best career. Because they're all, 
they're all kind of like right around there. It's kind of weird about, you know, without going back and being a nerd and watching your know, video and all three in depth, I would say Dom. But all three guys just make those, oh, my God, plays you can't believe. Um, my, my, my last big thought I have here is I, you know, you brought up name redacted. And, you know, I was thinking about that tattoo he had, and I had to go back and look it up. And I think this pretty much sums up why he's a bad quarterback. He has a tattoo on his bicep, and you probably see him, of course, and it says, live life to its fullest. And I think if he had a tattoo that said, live life to the fullest, I think he would be a much better quarterback. But that little change in pronouns, I think, is is really the issue with him in his entire life, is that the difference between the and it can make a huge difference in how somebody is. Wait a minute. Was, was the tattoo, which arm was it on? Was it on his throwing arm? On his left arm, so not his throwing oh, arm. Oh, no, for a second, because I thought if he was... I think, I think yeah. it's a negative. I think it's a negative. Yeah, it's weighing him down. It, that, yeah. that's, why so, that's why so many throws went into the dirt. It's literally just... If you're, it's like having <laughs> putting an arm, like a weight on your left arm. It's just it's gonna drop you, and that's just gonna yeah. mess up your mechanics. Yeah, and how are you gonna throw the ball downfield with accuracy with not that superhero tattoo on your on your other bicep? It's just a shame. What could have been, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, you know, we'll we'll have to leave those kind of fantasies for another day, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's all we got for tonight. Thank you. I know we didn't get to any draft stuff. We talked about Bill O'Brien's newest version of a super genius offense or what we could possibly have gained from uh, or what we may have learned about Brian Gain during free agency. But all that can wait for another time. There's, it's going to be a long spring and a, and a long summer. We can get to that then. But anyways, thank you for listening live. Everybody listen live on your drive home this early evening. Uh, thank you for the questions that you asked, even though one of them involved our president. So the, my favorite president is always the president who's in office currently because I'm an American. <laughs> you know, you got to stick with your leadership. And uh, so we didn't want to get to really that necessarily. But, you know, uh, there's always next time. But anyway, thank you for being on tonight, Luke. It was a, a fun time. It was a good time. It was good talking to you about you know, Texas free agency. It's been a while. No, it's, it's, it's always, always fun to come on and Always fun to talk about uh, what may or may what Bill O'Brien's offense may or may not look like next season, and you know to make fun of Brock Osweiler. That's always important. That's a tradition unlike any other. But exactly. Anyway, thank you for being on tonight. Thank you for listening, everybody. I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seems Smart. It Seems Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seem smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart.